0: Welcome to our very first episode of The Firm, our very own business podcast. You have myself, Nafsej, and Z. and today we are honored to have our our very first guest as the country president for Chubb Life Thailand, Miss Angela Hunter. Um, Miss Hunter, do you think you could give us a quick intro about um, Chubb Life and your position at the company?
1: Yes, definitely. I can thank you for having me on uh, your first podcast. So uh, Chubb Life is uh, part of a bigger organisation, uh, Chubb Globally. It operates in about 150 countries around the world. Um, basically, uh, it offers uh, products that range from sort of personal, um, what we call property and casualty, so things like home and motor, travel insurance, um, small business insurance, large commercial insurance, and then life insurance um, is, is one of the growing parts of its portfolio and it operates in uh, over a hundred countries and Asia is the primary market and Thailand is a very big part of, uh, of that market. And uh, I am the CEO, country president of Chub Life. We have the main three product lines being health insurance for individuals, Life insurance for individuals and savings plans for individuals. That's essentially the products we offer.
0: Okay, so for those products, what is like the most? What's the thing that you prioritize within those policies to be able to uh, service a diverse range of customers?
1: So, uh, uh, the key for uh, the key for us in again in Thailand, but is that we look at what are the customer needs? So what is it that customers are looking for? In, in Thailand and very similar in other Asia markets, we have a lot of underinsured. So not a lot of people have life insurance. And in the Thai market, not a lot of people have what we call medical coverage beyond, um, you know, what you can get in the public health system mm-hmm. and the savings plans. So there's a, a huge gap in education about the importance of having life insurance or the importance of having health insurance and savings plans. So um, that's we tend to focus on that. Uh, so our primary channel is what we call the agency channel. So these are uh, full time insurance agents, and um, they work with uh, you know customers. Those customers can be from eighteen years, yeah, eighteen years to maybe fifty five. Um, and, you know, we talked to them about what they've currently got, what current protection they've got, uh, what medical coverage they've got, whether they've got savings. And we talked to them about things like what would happen in certain situations. And, um, you know, one would be if, if they, if they want to provide education for their children, as the children get older, how are they planning to fund that, um, you know, if something happened to the main breadwinner in the family, mm-hmm. um, what would happen if the main breadwinner passed away? You know, not something we necessarily in Asia, we kind of don't really like talking about that. Yeah. And, um, and again, what happens if there were, you know, if there's an illness and you're in the hospital system, um, you know, do they feel that they're adequately covered, you know, to cover major hospitalization and so on? And then that leads to you know sort of a gap analysis and a you know and a, a more of awareness of uh, what uh, potential customers might need, and then obviously you kind of drill into a bit more information to be a bit more specific about um, the solutions, the benefits, and affordability. So the two key challenges in markets like Thailand, which is quite similar to Vietnam and Indonesia, mm-hmm. is what we call access and affordability. So the two challenges you have is how do people get access to these products? You know, it's they're not there's not a lot of information um, online, and generally people don't go looking for it. Okay. So you know, people might go looking for how much it, can I get car insurance for? Um, how do I buy a travel insurance policy? People might go looking for that, but generally speaking, people do not go looking for life insurance. So it's much more of a push conversation where unless they're speaking to someone, uh, they get an insurance agent or they're with a fan. They've not even really had a conversation about insurance to understand whether they need it or not on the life insurance side. So that's what we call accessibility. Uh, So that's a challenge. Um, And then affordability is the other challenge in markets like Thailand where you still have large parts of the population um, which, uh, don't have a lot of disposable
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and so if you look at accessibility, that's where digital comes into play. That's where offering insurance through other, uh, you know, distribution channels other than agents comes into play and education. So trying to educate people on the benefits of life insurance and health insurance and savings. I'll stop there
2: for a minute. Yes. So um a follow up question to that would be um how does how does how did the COVID nineteen pandemic impact the insurance industry and how did how has child Life responded to these challenges?
1: It's a great question. Um so the first thing I think uh, that happened is life insurance in many countries in Asia has been a little bit behind on um, digitization and uh you know very much uh a lot of kind of manual work and paper Uh, so the first thing that happened in a very short period of time starting from February 2020 was working through how to be able to still service our customers and sell insurance remotely when people did not want to meet face to face Um, so we very quickly had to come up with an online uh, process that wasn't fully digital but it was you could you could you know an agent or a salesperson and a customer could interact with each other from both a sales and a servicing perspective. Uh, within within six weeks, uh, we were able to launch a process that made that possible. Um, and uh, so that, and then a lot about the way we ran the company. Most of the people in the office, uh, there was a lot of manual work. So again, uh, being able to get. 90% of our workforce to be able to do their jobs from home and be able to look after customers and make sure that, um, you know, we were running the company, that people's claims were being paid, that, you know, people's policies were getting to them, that they got the coverage they needed, that we could answer all of their questions. So those were the two things was, that we did was, the, if you like, the sales and the service process face-to-face with the customer had to be able to be online. um. And uh, and and you know quite smooth. And the second thing is we had to be able to run the company with ninety percent of wow. our workforce working from home. So that was the first impact of COVID, which was we just needed to change the way we did business, and we needed to change the way we interacted with customers. So we were pretty proud that we were able to do it um, very quickly without um, service interruption mainly. The um, the second part I think was. Um, Interesting, which we found as we came through the first and second year of COVID. That remember I said to you at the start of this, we the challenge of trying to address is people don't necessarily go looking for insurance. Yeah. Right. Um, what changed during COVID, particularly on medical, uh, a little bit on uh, life insurance and death coverage, but what happened on medical is the awareness, the awareness of the need for medical coverage became pretty clear for most people like you know the the daily newspapers the stats on covid the hospitalizations the impacts of covid the death rates on covid you know everyone around the world saw that so what that did is create a higher level of awareness for people of the need to buy health insurance and critical illness and to a to a smaller degree life insurance Mm -hmm. so we saw that gap between people who were not aware Need it that really, uh, that we the gap reduced, and many, many more people said the demand for health insurance, critical illness, and life insurance coming out of COVID has increased dramatically.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Like a little decide question was so, do you think that there was like an increase in profits or like a decrease?
1: And that's also an interesting question because what we saw during COVID was a huge increase in claims for COVID. In Thailand, if you were diagnosed with COVID, you were hospitalised for a minimum of 14 days. Uh, So whether you were ill or not. uh, Now, normally for our medical insurance, the average number of days that someone is hospitalised when they claim is three to five days. So the first thing that happened to us is our average claims increased by three times because mm. five days, see five days average hospital stay became fourteen days average hospital stay.
2: Yeah.
1: and um, So that that was a big increase. So you'd say if you looked at that alone, you'd say profits went down. But then the other interesting thing that happened during COVID is the non-COVID claims, i.e., respiratory illnesses, other. You know, I've I've gone and had a checkup, and I want to get maybe an elective surgery or operation. That decreased. So for us, actually, profits stayed quite similar because we saw an increase in COVID claims but a decrease in non-COVID claims. So net-net, we were were about the same. Uh, But we did see some of our businesses were impacted with lower sales at the start of COVID, but that came back towards the end of COVID. So some of the people that were um, uh, with less... um, Disposable income. So we had a lot of people in Thailand, a big tourist country. Quite like a high percentage of our GDP comes from tourism. So you can imagine, tourists stopped coming. We closed the country in March 2019, and we did not open the country in Thailand until July 2022. So schools, universities worked from home. No tourists, no visitors. There were of thousands, millions of people that were not working. Some of those were covered under the government schemes uh, in uh, what we call the furlough. So they got some minimal government payments. But most people in Thailand did not get any coverage when they lost their jobs up public work. So what that makes is people's level of affordability to buy insurance or renew their premiums uh, obviously was massively impacted. So we did see a drop. In the initial part of COVID, in people buying insurance, mainly in the lower, what I call socio kind of segment, the you know the lower afford, you know the lower affordability segment, mm-hmm. our main segment, which is kind of in the higher, what we call mass uh, market and lower affluent, they weren't particularly impacted, uh, but some of our customers who have got lower incomes were quite big, were quite impacted, and so. Didn't renew the premiums or define sharks policy, um, so we our revenues were impacted by that. And then towards the end of COVID uh, in the second year, that bounced back. So again, overall, uh, I think if you looked at it over a three year period, um, pretty similar in terms of um, profitability.
0: Yeah. Um. So, you you mentioned um one of the first for for the first impact that COVID had on Chubb was digitization, so. Since since then, you know, COVID has died down, but digitization is still more prevalent than ever. So how do you think that has, you know, changed the view on how Chubb, you know, runs operations?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think what COVID taught everybody was what is possible when you have to do something, uh, when you have no choice but to do something, versus when it's in your, you know, in a plan that you can take you know, a, a relatively longer period of time to do it. So again, I think it created the uh, the opportunity of, of what is possible and definitely accelerated some of the investments and the speed at which we want to move, particularly uh, for the things that um, you know, still needed to be improved or digitised um, post-COVID. So we made quite a bit of progress in being able to operate as a business during COVID. But it's the experience and the automation, if we say things like robotic process automation, um and, you know, di- you know, trying to digitize uh, you know, things like claims and underwriting. Mm-hmm. Whilst we were able to put those online, it still required people interaction. So now now we are accelerating um the fully digitised models of on things like claims and underwriting and sales, and since uh, we got back after COVID, we've launched digital uh, digital uh, sales, um, and again coming out of the back of COVID, that that was that was accelerated. So I think for myself and I know other insurance companies in Thailand, it's it's given us an incentive to really make sure um, that you know the. Customer experience um, and the digital tools are out there on an on an ongoing basis, and um, you know that we move towards you know being able to operate as seamlessly as possible. With you need people people intervention in what I pull your non you know the sort of standard um, transactions, mm-hmm. but countries like Thailand and like Vietnam and other places have you know, there's a lower cost of employing people than, say, in markets like Singapore and Hong Kong. So generally, it would be cheaper. Historically, it would be cheaper to hire people rather than to invest in the technology. That's changed over the last five years. So uh, definitely uh, an accelerated plan on digitization has come out of COVID.
2: Yeah. Okay, so, like, moving uh, forward from COVID... Uh, could you talk about some like general operations of the company, such as um, how does Chubb Life approach to risk management and how it ensures that its policies are financially stable and sustainable over the long term?
1: Another great question. So, being a global company, um, as a global company, we have what we call a risk appetite. So, generally, what that would mean is we have a very clear view about what types of insurance we want to write and what types of risks uh, we want to take on and which ones we don't, and we're and we're quite clear about that. Uh, because we're selling long-term policies, we're not selling uh, policies that are what we call annually renewable
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, So a long-term approach is key. So once we've decided the risk appetite, we have, um, you know, you'll have you'll, heard this before, but... A key skill in actuarial is um, what we call the actuarial modelling, which is where some of the uh, sophisticated mathematics comes into play. And we look at um, experience of how, uh, you know, our, our insurance policies and things like pricing and claims, we look at how those have performed um, over many years to make decisions about how we price it moving forward. So what that means is we have a lot of experience. We can look at, you know, a type of product and a group of customers, and understand uh, how we need to price that to be financially viable, and how that should perform in terms of things like claims and so on. Um, and we have uh, we look at that. We monitor that experience. We monitor trends. We work with industry bodies on um, what's happening. We. You know best practice in terms of sort of you know risk management and pricing, and uh, again, what we, what we try to do, and this is something Chubb in particular prides itself on, is we we underwrite, meaning we price and take a risk for things that we understand and that we see ourselves as experts in. We're not generally a company that will decide to do something that we have no experience in in terms of, you know, uh, an insurance coverage. However, we'll look at you know, things like insurance sold by agents traditionally where we didn't have digital, definitely um, we would, it's in our risk appetite that we sell selling these types of insurance and whether we sell it by, a, you know, a fully trained agent or whether we sell it online or whether we sell it in telemarketing or whether we sell it by back. we would see ourselves as having, um, you know, experience and expertise in that in terms of knowing how to price it and make it and and it be sustainable and again one of the key things there is you're going to operate in a market you have to be competitive Um, Mm. so you need to have products that are competitive in the market that give the customer value Um, you know and the regulator does help uh, with that in terms of making sure uh, the regulatory framework supports customer fairness and then as CHOP we have you know, customer fairness policies about making sure um, that, you know, the, the things that we're selling to customers are, 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 are valuable and fair in terms of the weight and price and manage the benefits.
0: Um, so, how does Child Life, like, differentiate itself from other insurance companies in terms of customer service and innovation?
1: So yeah, another another really good question, and um, you know for us, because in life insurance, we're not the biggest in Asia, so we're probably sitting in the middle somewhere between number ten and number twelve in the marketplace, so there are you know other insurance companies that are a lot bigger than we are. So in terms of being able to compete, uh, you know we pride ourselves on a on a service model, so again we're we're a large company but in Thailand. We still are able to. We you know who all our employees are. You know, we've not got thousands of people, so we haven't lost track of who all our uh, employees are. And we have partnerships where we we try and we try and work with partnerships that are similar to us. So it's sort of almost like a bit of a, a family. We get to know each other really well. Mm-hmm. We go we go the extra mile. So for us, the service. So we will we will maybe provide service to a similar sized company to us that maybe the bigger player can't provide because they're maybe dealing with companies that are as big as they are. Uh-huh. So it's that trying to pitch that we can we can provide a level of service or a mid sized company and a large company that one of our competitors cannot provide. Mm-hmm. Because they're busy trying to look after their bigger clients and then it's like service the smaller companies the way they're service and the bigger companies. So we do that. Um we also have an advantage. We do have a global company that we can leverage best practice customer experience. We've been able to leverage digital tools so we don't have to start from scratch. Um we you know we're able to learn what is best practice um on you know things like customer experience, digitization and servicing and be able to copy that at a relatively low cost. So um that's definitely an advantage we have.
0: Mhm. Okay. So, um, now moving on from um the company and more to uh your experience at Chubb. How, you um as a CEO, you you definitely have um you're you're in a very you have a lot of responsibilities to take uh you know, take charge of a large uh employee base. So, what kind of corporate culture have you put in place um at at Chubb?
1: Yeah, so I think um the culture the culture for us is, again, a key one given that we're not the biggest company. So, again, when you're talking about corporate culture, it becomes important when you're trying to attract and retain people mm-hmm. because, you know, there's always a bigger company that might offer a little bit more money. Yeah. Um, so I think that that feel that they can walk in, you know, that the CEO and the leadership team are approachable. So we're not a hierarchical company. Uh, So we, we create opportunities where employees feel comfortable uh, talking to senior leadership, you know, they don't have to feel like they have to go through five levels of management to have a conversation. So I think that's one important thing. Um, I think because we are um, also a little smaller, we try to provide people with a broader scope in terms of job and learning and, um, you know, and that that is definitely something uh, that we that we drive. One of the key things I think that's an advantage of being a smaller company is we're not very political. So some you know some of our bigger companies they're so large and so politics becomes really important. And uh, so it, in this company, it's more important uh, what you do and what you deliver and how you do that. So we're very much a results-focused organization. We're achievement-focused, and we reward we reward people for doing the right things. It's not about you know, it's about you know whether you do the things that you say you're going to do and you do it the right way. Uh, teamwork, teamwork, and I know everybody says it like teamwork is critical. Um, so for me, I grew up in a large family of nine children, and I was the youngest. So teamwork is bred from being a youngster. So it's something in my own teams. I will not, you know, I will not stand for my uh my teams and my direct reports being competitive with each other um and competing with each other. Um it's about we're on the same team and yeah, you know, we're gonna achieve as a team. We we tend to provide rewards um and recognition for teamwork. We we also do some individual, but most of what we do is about the team achieving and the team celebrating not not necessarily just um individuals so I think just those are those are a few things I, I think that um make us a good place to work we've actually had a, quite a few people who left for more money mm-hmm. six months down the track course and say can we come back because I get more money but I don't like my job <laughs> and I don't like the culture so you know that's i am and I'm very happy with that. like I, I will always encourage someone who's got a great opportunity who's going you know potentially make more money that's going to change their life or their family's life. I would never stop what, someone from doing that, but I'm always pretty happy when they call and say, "Hey, I tried it," and um, you know, I didn't like it and kind of come back.
2: Wow,. Oh. Do <laughs> <laughs> you let them come back? <laughs>
1: yeah of course most of the time the people yeah most of the time the people that have called um they've come yeah number of examples there we with thought people
2: <laughs> okay well moving on um so i know like during the pandemic like i think some employees have like a lack of motivation due to like the big changes that you might i uh you might you guys might have implemented so how did you um, tackle that problem, and how has your leadership style changed during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, that was that was really tough, actually. And again, because um, I, I'm definitely much better, I think as a as a leader when I'm face to face with people, I like interacting with people. Uh, some people actually preferred being at home and just working by themselves. Some people preferred that during COVID, right? But I definitely was not one of them. And um, so again, you know, as a leadership team, we worked hard on communication, um, like just staying in touch uh, with people. So there, of course, there was all the regular meetings we needed to have. Um, you know, if we if we had you know if we had issues to deal with, we'd have meetings. We'd have you know all of our regular project meetings would still go ahead. All of our regular business reviews would still go ahead all of our planning stuff would soon go ahead but on top of that just created opportunities just to connect you know to check in on people um we even used, we even had um you know bring bring your family to the bring your family to the webEx um you know do a meet and greet oh. with your family virtually um mm-hmm. uh, so we got to know you know who they were sharing the covid the covid pain with and in Thailand, there was a lot of people that live in very small places where there was probably at least three or four other people in, you know, like a two bedroom apartment that were also trying to work from home and do WebExes and take calls. So it's quite, quite, quite challenging. Um, so we tried to do that. I think, you know, the recognition that it's not the same when you're in the room, you have to work much, much harder at getting people to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, and I, I was guilty of this myself if if it was a, you know, if I got asked to come to a meeting with the home office that I didn't, you know, particularly think was that interesting, I'd be on the WebEx, but I'd be doing other things at the same time because no one can see me. uh, They can see my face, but they can't see anything else. So I can, you know, do other things. And I think that was one of the challenges, right, that people went into this kind of whole multitasking mode, and so getting engagement from people when you're not in the room was super tough. So we had a thing where we would uh not the every meeting, but we would ask we would tell people we want you we want you to be on video and we expect you to contribute to the meeting. So there's no meeting you're allowed to come to where you don't participate in the meeting in some way, shape or form. Right. Um so again, that that was something uh you had to learn was how to try to get people you know how would you ask questions or get people to interact more? It was super tough. It really was super tough. I think the biggest challenge, though, has been getting people to change those behaviours. Now we're back in office, so we are. Uh, we created a flexible work policy as we came back to the office. We 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 actually created a brand new um, office design that was more hybrid to allow people flexibility to work from home and and you know. Uh, work in the office and do some work from home. The hardest thing was getting people back to work. And when people were in the office, not to get on WebEx to do the meetings. So we literally had people in the office that were on their own WebExes that were all in the office uh, rather than going into a room and doing the meeting together in the meeting. So that actually the hardest thing is now getting people to unlearn some of the behaviours that were useful during COVID that are not useful when you're in the office and so we're just dealing with that at the moment. Very interesting. Some great things about understanding productivity and the fact that people can get their jobs done mm-hmm. and that you should allow people to have some level of flexibility and that they don't need to be in the office every day. Uh, but, you know, when they are in the office, you do want people to be connecting, workshops, you know, collaborating and, you know, spending time with each other and, you know, not, not using WebEx and email to communicate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I feel like um, me and Z definitely conclude, like relate to this because like in school when we had online school, we the lack of motivation was just such a like a big issue, and even after it like lockdown finished and we went back to school, it kind of carried on a little bit still. So, um, how do you stay motivated and driven as a leader of your company?
1: Uh, look, I think the first thing is to be I think being passionate about what you do and um, feeling like you have a purpose um, that you, that kind of drives you and wants you to kind of get up in the morning. So to me, you know, there's, there's a couple of pieces there. During COVID, you know, the purpose, my purpose was to make sure, you know, that I was positive and upbeat and visible to the team when this is a very difficult situation for people, particularly, you know, trying to get up every day and there's no difference between where you eat and where you sleep and where you work. And now even more so, you know, people were, you know, it it seemed like we had to be more accessible in terms of calls and emails than we were before COVID. So for me, the motivation comes from trying to kind of help people through that. And knowing that at the end of the day, you know, part of my purpose was to keep my team upbeat and motivated. And, you know, the, the main purpose is that you know, I truly believe insurance has, um, a great role to play in the community by, you know, helping people when they're in a tough situation, whether that's, you know, a medical situation or, you know, even worse. Um, you know, for me, I, I lost two of my brothers in their early forties, uh, wow. and they, one of them had insurance, a life insurance policy and the other one didn't. And so when, when, my brother, who didn't have life insurance, died. You know, his family were under stress because he was the main breadwinner. And so his income was gone and no life insurance and no savings. So that family was impacted massively by that, right? Versus my other brother who passed away, it, it doesn't stop the grief of losing the loved one. You don't need the grief of losing a loved one and then need to figure out how you're going to pay your mortgage or your rent next week. Mm -hmm. So to me, I feel that insurance serves a great purpose in the community. So I I really truly believe that. And so for me, the purpose is getting as many people as we can to be able to educate, um, you know, in my case, Thai people um, about the need for, you know, in, you know, being protective, you know, having life insurance, having savings and, you know, putting stuff by for a rainy day, making sure you've got, you know, things in place if something goes wrong. Um, so that's what drives me as an individual to do what I do every day.
2: Wow. Didn't know those that deep. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Can't just be about money.
2: Yeah. I thought it was all about the money. No. Oh. Yeah, uh, for him. Uh, I mean, as CEO, they follow you in quite a bit. So I thought their main, yeah, this was just like, yeah, we want to get the most money out of insurance, you know, which policies push plans. No, I feel like no, I... I don't
1: think there will be people like that out there. I mean, I'm, I'm again, I think I'm unfortunate because our chairman, and I'd encourage you to get a chance to go and read about him. His name is Evan Greenberg. He's the vulnerable chairman. And he's still—he's like a multi multi minute millionaire, and he's still working at sixty-seven because he just loves what he, his purpose and what he does and how he thinks it helps people all around the world. Yeah,
0: yeah. I feel like sometimes, like as a kid, like as when you're younger, you just think about the money. Like especially when trying to get into business, you just think about the money, but you forget yeah. what what. Okay. Yeah. I-
1: You know, I I think you need to, by the way, because you kind of have to, my experience is that you kind of have to go through that. And at some point in your career, you'll get to a point where money is not as much of an issue for you in terms of, and then you're looking for something else. Uh, Once you've worked out, you can pay your bills and buy some of the things that you want and look after your family and do all that. Then you start to look for, you know, uh, something that drives you that's more than that.
2: Probably
1: not until you get close to my age. Then you start to think about what value am I adding to other people. We don't think about those things when we're younger.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, just like a curiosity question like, how did you get to this position? Hello, CL. Did you have to climb your really head? up?
1: I never set out. It was not something I ever set out to do. I mean, I've got my family are actually I've got a working class background. Um, my dad was um, worked in a foundry. My mum was in catering. a Family of nine. I mean, we've you know we we you know, we, we kind of were, I wouldn't have described us as kind of poor, mm-hmm. but you know we there wasn't a lot of you know money for things that were not important yeah. um and so you know i i never set out to to be a ceo but i you know i guess was driven by seeing people uh around me that were um not uh very well off and didn't have enough money and i'd kind of set in my mind i definitely don't want to be that like that i definitely want to have enough money to you know have a house, you know, have a family, and not worry about money, so that was definitely an initial motivation um so and then studying was all part of that you know studying, get a better job, be able to make sure that I can make decisions and have what I would call financial freedom, so if you sort of talk about financial freedom as not having to worry about some of those things um and then I guess I just got into you know a job where um I found things that I was good at and, you know, people, uh, you know, promoted me and, you know, gave me encouragement and told me that, you know, I was capable of doing other things and over time, got more responsibility. And then one day I found myself sitting in the corner office.
2: (laughs) Wow. Corner office. (laughs) Cell of place. and
1: i have used that as a metaphor because I don't actually sit in a corner office. When we, when we, when we redesigned um, our office, any rooms that we use are all the same size, so nobody has a bigger, nobody has a bigger room than anybody else. everybody's room is the same size, and they're all meeting rooms. They're sort of what we call closed space, so I can use it for meetings when I'm here, when I'm not here, somebody can use it as a meeting room.
0: Um, okay, so we have. One last concluding question to ask you. Um, we ask everyone who comes on the podcast this question. Uh, what advice would, could you, would you give to young people who are interested in pursuing a career in business or like starting their own company or being a leader in a, an existing company?
1: What advice would I give? Um, okay, I think two, two, two things. I would definitely try to find something you like doing that you can be passionate about. Uh, um, So I I try and try and find something that sort of makes sense that you, that you like. I think that's important.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And the second thing I think um, is to as much as possible, if you can, you know, learn how to um, work with people and see people as, um, part of your success whether that's you know whether that's team members peers and people that you work with partners so again you know success is always about how you work with other people and how that sort of combination of your skills and their skills and how you work together so I think it's thing to me to be passionate and be a leader even if you're not even if you're not in charge of a lot of people or even if you're not if you haven't got any people but just be a leader be passionate about what you do um you know work hard but have some balance of other things in your life other than work
0: okay well that was our that was our last question so like thank you so much for coming on this is really amazing this is really fun thank you so much
1: I hope, I hope we've set the standard for the future
0: ones. Yeah, See? definitely. Okay. Yeah.
1: You have a great weekend.
0: Yeah, you it's- too. Thank you so much. You. You. Bye, God. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you guys for
2: listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned to more episodes where we will have a lot of different business leaders and CEOs from different industries. Bye-bye.